I enjoy hot coffee and on occasion iced coffee, but I don't like lukewarm coffee. Cold water is refreshing on a hot day. Hot water is comforting on a cold day. But, you know, lukewarm, it's, it's just not my cup of tea. I don't, I don't care for it. Well, the church at Laodicea was neither hot nor cold. They were lukewarm. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. Today we come to the conclusion of our look at the seven churches of Asia Minor addressed by the Lord Jesus Christ through the Apostle John in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And this week we've been looking at the lukewarm church of Laodicea. Dr. Brogy has noted that this church, like many members of churches today, had hearts that were not fully committed to Christ. When this happens, be it the first century or the 21st, God says he will spew us out of his mouth because of our lukewarmness. Let's rejoin Dr. Brogy now as he shares a story about a well-known missionary who gave up a promising medical career to fully devote himself to God. C.T. Stott, I read his autobiography as a young man, as a relatively new Christian, and he was a medical doctor in England. He was raised in the lap of luxury. I mean, they were worth millions. And of course, uh, he recognized at one point in his life that he was one of those lukewarm, apathetic Christians. He ended up making his life right, and he actually went and spent the rest of his life serving as a missionary in Africa. Now, a lot of you know at least a stanza out of the famous poem he wrote, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. But what many people do not know is that he wrote that poem in response to a tract that he read by a so-called atheist. And God used the tract of an atheist to move him out of his lukewarmness. Let me read a portion of that tract as it comes from his autobiography. Did I firmly believe, the atheist wrote, as millions say they do, that the knowledge and practice of religion in this life influences destiny in another, religion would mean to me everything. I would cast away earthly enjoyments as dross, earthly cares as follies, and earthly thoughts and feelings as vanity. Religion would be my first waking thought, and my last image before sleep sank me into unconsciousness. I should labor in its cause alone. I would take thought for the mar of eternity alone. I would esteem one soul gained for heaven worth a life of suffering. Earthly consequences should never stay my mind nor seal my lips. Earth, its joys and its griefs would occupy no moment of my thoughts. I would strive to look upon eternity alone and on the immortal souls around me, soon to be everlastingly happy or everlastingly miserable. I would go forth to the world and preach to it in season and out of season. And my text would be, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Now that was an atheist mocking the Christians of his day. And C.T. Stodd was absolutely convinced that what that man said was true because it was consistent with the Bible, and his life was not consistent. And so he writes that he was determined, I quote, from that time forth, my life should be consistent, and I set myself to know what God's will is for me. Stud knew that Christ was not worthy of lukewarmness. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Now, please do not miss 
the audience to whom Jesus is speaking. He's not speaking to the out-and-out sinner. He's not speaking to the one who's cold. He's not speaking to the one who's passionately living for Jesus. He's not speaking to the arrogant man who raises his fist boldly, brazenly, hatefully in the face of God, ignoring him, rejecting him. He is speaking to the lukewarm, fence-straddling Christian. Now, sometimes we call these people carnal Christians. But listen, some of those whom we call carnal Christians who are lukewarm are not Christians at all. They're actually lost. But listen, and we'll talk about that before we're done. We have a lot of lukewarm Christians in the era in which we live. And remember, at the end of the age, before Jesus comes again, what will typify the average Christian is their love will grow cold. That's what Jesus said. And I believe that's the age we are living in. A day of gross apathy. We have mild-mannered, weak preachers who are afraid to tell the truth, preaching to mild-mannered Christians, producing mild-mannered disciples, rather than people who are passionate for Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you why so many people are bored when they come on Sunday morning, because the preachers are boring, because they're bored with Jesus. How can you be bored with Jesus? How can you be bored with the one who gave everything for you, who redeemed you? How can you be lukewarm? Now, remember, these are people who came to church every Sunday. They weren't forsaking the assembly. They were there. They were singing the hymns. But there are Christians today who are lukewarm. They spend more time on their Facebook page than they do in the Holy Scripture. They come here and they sing the hymns, and as soon as they get into the parking lot, they turn on the secular worldly music. They know little about praying, maybe nothing about fasting, and they can't even believe God to give 10 cents out of a dollar. Lukewarm, apathetic, fence-straddling Christians, me-centered Christians. Now, that's the curse of lukewarmness. Let's talk now about the cause of lukewarmness, the cause of lukewarmness. Half the problem sometimes in solving a problem is seeing that there is a problem, but also to identify the cause of the problem. And so Dr. Jesus, like the great physician, underscores the cause of the problem again on three levels. First, he reminds us that lukewarmness is caused by warped values. Verse 17 begins, because you say, I am rich, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable. Now, the church in Laodicea is so different from the church in Smyrna. For they thought they were poor, but Jesus said they were rich. These people thought they were rich, and Jesus said, you're wretched and miserable. Perhaps here we have a hint of why this church that was once a great church had declined spiritually. They had probably become proud of their ministry, and they were evaluating their church by human standards and not by the divine standards of Jesus Christ. Listen, it doesn't matter what the church growth guy thinks of our church. What matters is what Jesus thinks about this church. Had you visited Laodicea and you said, hey, I'm a Christian from Ephesus, I'm looking for a church. Oh, let me tell you about First Church Laodicea. They're a great church. You need to go to, they've got a magnificent building. What a facility, what programs. Now, I know they didn't have buildings at this time. They met in homes. Oh, but you should see a home they meet in. It's a magnificent, beautiful, Beverly Hills kind of home. And the things they have going on, you need to go there. And the way they evaluated their success was warped. They didn't really see themselves, as Jesus is going to point out, the way they needed to see themselves. And we have the same problem today. We have people who come to hear sermons and we think, oh, tell them, pastor. 
I wish so-and-so were here today to hear that message. If they were here, wow, you would have gotten them. I told you once about this story about the man who would leave the church every Sunday and meet the preacher at the door and said, Pastor, that was a great sermon. You really got them today. You really combed their hair. And week after week after week, he'd make these statements. And what the pastor knew is this man didn't see that he was a problem. And sometimes as he would prepare his sermon, he'd think about this man. He'd pray for this man. He loved this man. He'd, he, he, he would think about what he was going to say as it related to this man. And week after week, he'd meet him at the door. Pastor, you got him again. You comb their hair. Well, one day there was a terrible snowstorm and only one man showed up, this one man. The pastor thinks, I'm loaded for bear. I'm going to get him. And he got up with all the passion and fury of his heart. And he preached the word and he ran to the exit and waited for the man to come and meet him. And the man shook his hand and said, Pastor, I wish the rest of the congregation was here. You really would have gotten them. You would have really combed their hair. Some of you say, tell them, Dr. Brogy. Get them, Dr. Brogy. Comb their hair. That's Laodicea. They didn't see it. They were blinded to the truth that they were lukewarm. And it was very, very sad. Secondly, not only did they have warped values, they didn't see themselves the way they needed to see themselves. They also had lukewarmness that was caused by self-confidence, by self-confidence. Now in verse 17, because I say you have become wealthy, you do not know you are poor. Now, this church had a very different opinion of itself. It evaluated itself and was pleased with itself and its circumstances. But just like the citizens in this affluent city who said, I've become wealthy and have need of nothing, these people had done that in the spiritual realm when in reality they were spiritual paupers. Now, we may admire people who can take care of themselves in the physical realm, that they don't have to beg, that they've got plenty of money. And sometimes prosperity becomes a stumbling block where it blinds us in the spiritual realm. And so Jesus will say on the night before he's crucified, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The second law of thermodynamics says that something must be added from the outside or the system will eventually decay or die. So without electricity, the water heater goes cold. Without refrigerant, the air conditioning does not work. And without Jesus working in and through you, you become lukewarm. And that's where these people were. I have need of nothing. And they did not understand just how great their need was. Third, the cure goes on. Lukewarmness uh, the, is caused by spiritual blindness. It's caused by spiritual blindness. Again, the cause, it's caused by spiritual blindness. Let me highlight the third problem he spells out. Because you say, I'm rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, the reality is you do not know that you are blind and naked. Jesus was saying, you think you've got it all together. You think you are looking fine when in reality you are naked. You have no clothes on and you cannot even see that you are naked. Now, the corrections that he makes, again, are allusions to the society in which they were in, which is why God says, don't be conformed to the world around you. Don't let the world shape you into its mold, but be transformed through the renewing of your mind. They lived in a place where there was a lot of wealth, an incredible banking industry, a medical school, a clothing service. 
And so Jesus takes the situation that had shaped them and addresses it specifically. As this chart says, they said, I am rich. Jesus said, you are wretched and miserable. They said, I am wealthy. Jesus said, you are poor. They said, I have need of nothing. Jesus said, in reality, you are blind and naked. I have four words circled in this verse. The words, you say, and I have an arrow here in my Bible going down to you are. You say this, but let me tell you what you really are. Now, he's not done. Jesus reminds them that what you say you are is not really true of you, and it's not true of me as the great amen. So he doesn't stop there. Having given the curse of lukewarmness and the cause of lukewarmness, he now describes the cure for lukewarmness. Like a great physician, he not only identifies the problem and goes to the root of the problem rather than into some Band-Aid fix, now he gives the cure for the problem. And the cure for lukewarmness begins with embracing the Lord's assessment. Until you own the problem for yourself, you're not going to move forward. Listen now to verse 18. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So the solution is to measure our standards by God's standards. If I ask you what temperature it was, you might say, well, 32 degrees. I might ask someone else, and they might say it's zero. Well, who would be right? Well, in one sense, you'd both be right, because one is on the Fahrenheit scale, and the other is on the centigrade scale. But what you want to do is you want to get your measurements on God's scale. You want to evaluate your life in light of the Lord's scale, in light of His standards. Verse 18 begins, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you become, may become rich. The key three words is buy from me. It's a profound truth God wants us to grasp. He is completely sufficient to meet all of the needs of the individual's believer here today. Now, nothing wrong with having a nice building to meet in any more than to have a nice house to live in. But listen, those things do not represent the deepest needs of life. Our deepest needs are gold, white clothing, and eye salve. The first of these is gold refined in fire. He is, in essence, saying, you know all about gold. You're one of the wealthiest cities in the Roman Empire. You've stored away gold in the bank, but what you need is my gold. You need to buy from me gold that is really gold that's refined in the fire. So how precisely do we buy gold? How do we buy from Christ what he wants us to have? Well, listen to Isaiah 55.1. This is Christ's way of describing his spiritual blessings he says here, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you have no money, come. Buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. You see, what he wants us to have in one sense is free. But it's found in Scripture. It's found in a different set of principles. Principles that are rooted here in the Word of God, where you exchange worldly riches for true riches, where you lay up treasure in heaven and not simply treasure on earth. How do you do that? You have to find out what God counts as gold, what God considers to be worthy of your investment. Then he mentions not only gold, but here in verse 18, white garments. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire 
so that you may become rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself. Now, white garments are used in a couple of different ways in the Revelation. If you were here a few weeks ago, I underscored two usages. Once, it's used for justification, but it's also used in the Revelation for sanctification. For instance, in Revelation 7.14, John sees this great multitude of people who had been beheaded for the faith. And he wants to know who they are. And the answer is, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That speaks of justification. This was a group of people who refused to bow down and give allegiance to the Antichrist in order to survive. They were willing to pay the ultimate price, even their lives. And because of that, they demonstrated genuine salvation and they had robes of righteousness. But it's also used in the book of Revelation and in other passages to speak of sanctification. For instance, in Revelation 19 and verse 8, it was given to her, the church, to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So here he's describing some people who are unstained by the world, who in the process of daily choices they have made, have put on the kinds of deeds and works that really matter, that are important to the living God. So that's what Jesus is saying. I advise you to buy for me white garments so that you may clothe yourself in the shame of your nakedness. You're buying all kinds of things, but the wrong things, your heart is in the wrong place. Now certainly, if you're here today and you're not a true Christian, you need the robe of justification the white robe of salvation, because if you don't have it and Jesus comes back, you will die and go to hell. But if you are a Christian, it's important that we buy the white robes of sanctification, that we are investing our lives in the things that really matter. Jesus, in effect, is saying, you may be shipping clothing all around the world, but the reality is you're naked. I advise you, third, to buy for me eye salve, to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Again, remember, it's a medical center, and this center, according to one ancient historian, was famous for their eye salve. They reduced it to a powder. They shipped it around the empire. You mixed it with water, and it had some value because people bought it, and it helped them. As Jesus said earlier, you're known around the world. People see you as a medical center who can be of great help and blessing, but the reality is, while you're trying to help other people to see, spiritually, you are blind and you need to get eye salve from me. This is the great physician speaking. You may think you've got it all together, but you don't because you're lukewarm. Secondly, the cure for lukewarmness is not only to embrace the Lord's assessment. You admit there's no problem, you'll never cure it. Half my job as a pastor sometimes in helping people with marriage counseling is to help them to see, you've got a problem, buddy. You're blaming your wife, you're blaming your husband, but the problem is you. You've got to begin with owning it. But secondly, you not only need to embrace his assessment, you need to respond to his command. Verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. Now please understand, lukewarmness in Jesus' eyes is not some weakness. It is a wickedness. Now, some of you, you don't commit adultery, you don't get drunk, you don't drink, you don't steal, but you're lukewarm. 
And that is a sin that must be dealt with. And Jesus reminds us that those whom he loves, he reproves, Hebrews 12. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. God disciplines his children, not because he hates us, but because he loves us. You say, well, I'm a Christian. I think I'm a lukewarm Christian, but I've never been disciplined. you got another problem. You're not a Christian. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Now, God is patient and long-suffering, but if you can run a long way in disobedience and never meet God in His discipline, then you've never met God in His salvation. And listen, if you're lukewarm today, before the day is over, I hope you'll get in some quiet place in your prayer closet and get on your knees, get on your face and say, Oh, God, I admit I am indifferent. I admit, God, I, I'm a fence straddler. And I confess my sin, and I ask that you would make me on fire for the Lord Jesus, for he is worthy of such fire. Finally, I learn in verse 20, the cure for lukewarmness is to pursue the Lord's person. We're not just talking about deeds, we're talking about a person. And Jesus affirms that here in verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in one word, to a second word, him. Not into one word. Two words in Greek, prosoton, literally to him, and will dine with him, and he with me. Now, this is an invitation to believers. In the last 50 or so years, we've used it evangelistically. It has nothing to do with evangelism. Into, towards him. He's outside, knocking on the door. He wants to come in, and he wants to come towards you. Draw near to God, He'll draw near to you. It's not an evangelistic verse. People in the last 50 years have talked about inviting Jesus into their heart. You will find that nowhere 100 years ago. That is not the way you share the gospel. Salvation has nothing to do with inviting Jesus into your heart. It has everything to do with believing and the death, burial, and resurrection of in His work on the cross, what we call the gospel. And a byproduct of that is He comes into your life. So one famous organization took these words into and made it one word, into. No, I will, I'll come towards you if you will open that door and I want to fellowship with you and dine with you. Jesus says, behold, here I am. He's outside and he's asking you to open the door. It's not a demand. He's not coercing you because love is a decision of the will. He wants to fellowship with you. I was in a famous church in London in one of the great cathedrals, and here is Holman Hunt's picture that caught my eye. It shows Christ outside on the door knocking of a door that's covered in vines and unkept. And after he produced his picture, the critic said, and I quote, Mr. Hunt, it's beautiful, but there's one thing you forgot to put a doorknob on the outside of that door. And Holman Hunt responded, and I quote, I did not forget. I did it that way on purpose. The doorknob is on the inside. It must be opened from the inside. Jesus may be knocking on your heart today for salvation. And your greatest need is to believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ that he might come in. Your greatest need to is, is to admit your bankruptcy and to trust in his finished work on the cross that you can be forgiven and changed. But some of you have done that. And he's knocking on the door of your heart because you are lukewarm. 
and by a definitive, deliberate act, you must open that door. It's an incredible expression of grace. A church that is lukewarm, he is still seeking that church with his everlasting love. And notice, you talk about forgiveness and restoration. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down on my father on his throne. He says, I'll grant to him to sit down on my throne. I went once in my life into the Oval Office, and I so bad wanted to ask the president if I could sit in that chair behind the desk, but I didn't ask. Jesus is going to say, come sit on my throne chair. I'm going to let you sit on the throne of the universe. You talk about amazing grace, and not only will I let you sit on my chair, I'll let you rule and reign with me. Today, if you've blown it and you've messed up your life and you've soiled it, it can be the first day of the rest of your life and you can get things right with him. He who has an ear, I hope you've got one. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes wherever you may be. Be still before God right now. And if you're not lukewarm and you're passionate for Jesus, thank God, but ask Him to keep you that way until He comes back or takes you by death. But if you are lukewarm, would you commit in your heart today to make it right before this day is finished? Would you make it right right now in your heart, on your face before God? to ask Him to forgive you. Two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears. Each with its days I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. When at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say, twas worth it all, only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Father, the foolish things that we pursue and give our hearts to, forgive us, for such clouded vision as Matt led us today. Be thou my vision, Lord. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. God, fill our minds with yourself. Help us to passionately love and follow Jesus. That when we see him in heaven, we'll not be ashamed. Help us to be a testimony worthy of the amen, the faithful and true one. And we ask it, Lord Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. To listen again to this or any of the messages in our study of the Revelation, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, 
or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV10. And when you contact us, please consider a one-time or recurring gift. Search the Scriptures is supported through the prayerful and financial support of listeners like you. Tomorrow we get a glimpse of heaven in our ongoing study of Revelation. Join us then as we search the Scriptures. Music